place I never believed that I would ever arrive to when I started this series, a centenary episode of the Reset Rebel podcast. And before we get into a little showcase of our best bits and the 99 amazing guests who've given up an hour of their day to join me here, not to mention you absolutely wonderful people for being here and listening, I wanted to share a little bit about exactly why I started the show because it certainly wasn't the result of some exultant interlude in my life. It was actually quite the opposite. I just lost my business and right after that, the person I thought I loved. So for me, it felt um, a little bit do or die and rather as if I'd fallen down an almighty black hole and I had no real idea uh, how to get out. I had been pouring myself into my work, sacrificing my own personal life to essentially look after others and make them feel good on retreat and three years later, when it all came to an abrupt halt, I was completely and utterly lost. I questioned everything about what it was that I really wanted to do next and coming off the back of six years of yoga teaching and running retreats and eventually my own retreat house called Samskara in the hills of San Vicente, I was pretty sure that after much soul searching I didn't really want to continue feeling as drained or exhausted or stressed and empty as I did in that moment shortly after my 40th birthday when my world kind of felt like it pretty much crumbled. Now, far from being a poor me story, (laughs) I just really felt compelled for the first time to really share um, some of the stories that led me there on so many levels. And that's why this podcast is obviously called The Reset Rebel, because if you visited this magic white aisle and feel connected to it, you'll also know just by being here how much it can pop you back on your perch in life. Maybe a week or two here, even a month will leave you feeling ecstatic. But sometimes living and residing here when you're not from here can be a wild but also very rocky old ride with resets required on a daily basis. It will also peel away your layers one by one until you're at your most raw, vulnerable, exposed, but also probably the most authentic version of you, love it or hate it. And there's almost nowhere to hide here. Uh, It's such a small island with a lot of familiar faces at every turn. And many people do depart these fair lands, tail between their legs, walking away from their dream because it just isn't always sustainable or even possible to stay a minute longer and make it work or face the music. And that, for me, was the first thing that I did. Obviously, I ran far, far away um, when my dream felt like it had fallen on its ass and hopped on a plane to my usual hangout and healing grounds of Goa. After a month of walking, dreaming, sleeping, catching up with old friends in the yoga community and doing all the things I know usually fix me like dancing, yoga, meditation, kirtan, riding a royal Enfield and trying to reconnect with what it was on the face of this earth that I felt that I was meant to be doing with the rest of my life, it slowly started to unravel piece by piece. On one of those morning walks at sunrise, it hit me, not for the first time, that having worked in radio my whole life before I came to Ibiza, it was time to start doing the one thing that I had actually been talking about doing for the past decade um, since leaving the bosom of BBC Six Music in London and creating the one thing that I knew deep down would probably give me some kind of purpose again. 
As much as I love teaching yoga, without a home to host the people I was hoping to help, I couldn't really see a way back and it felt like a huge injustice to lose the thing that I'd been working so hard to create. And I was just really angry and confused and hurt and really frustrated and just really, really heartbroken. And it felt like the end. But instead of plunging further um, into the self-pity parties that I started throwing, <laughs> throwing for myself, I decided to take um, some serious action, some positive affirmative action and crack on with the one thing that I'd really been putting off for years and finally start this series. So first of all, trust me, if you are listening to this and thinking about that one big seemingly undoable task um, that's on your list in 2022 my only advice is start start now start with your hands shaking your voice trembling and your knees like jelly because just doing something when you don't know what to do first um, will make you feel better and because you started and for me that was always the hardest part and not knowing where to start And the reason I set up my podcast courses here on Ibiza, um, which is another massive catalyst of starting the project, and that was realising how much I missed radio, audio and making things and meeting fascinating people. And the momentum for that is only created um, when just those first tiny little wobbly steps into the unknown get taken. But those steps are the big brave ones, you know, straight into god knows where so i never dreamed of arriving when i when i started this to 100 episodes it felt you know like a very very temporary fix to not knowing um, what to do next and it was just something um, to give me a project until i figured out the rest but those steps came faster and harder and quicker and longer and after the podcast gained momentum I really just started to remember how much I loved creating and my old career as a journalist and a researcher and a storyteller. A great um, word I live my life for in Ibiza from, and this came about when I first walked around the island is the word trust. And I really um, believe in the word trust. And I say, if you trust in Ibiza, Ibiza will give back to you and trust you back. So I use that a lot in my life. And you, you asked the question earlier on about how do I get people along these crazy ledges sometimes on the hard walks, on the easy walks, not in existence? But on the hard walks, I, I trust that it, I'm doing the right thing and I'm being guided by whether it's Tanit, Buddha, God, or whatever you want to call it. Someone, something is guiding me, or, or I've got the faith, and that's what it's about. And if you have the trust in life that I'm doing the right thing, then everything's going to be okay. And it is. So just talking to all the wellness experts who've been on the show with whom I focused on series one. And such a wealth of knowledge, um, speaking to them about how to reset was step one, to actively remind myself every single week what is possible during that conversation. And in that process, I wanted to try and help others to do exactly the same. And that became my yoga off the mat. And you become addicted to joy. You become addicted to pleasure. You become addicted to the welfare emotions as opposed to being addicted to the emergency emotions everybody 90% of people are addicted to the emergency emotions they they don't believe anything unless it gives them pain they need some pain so you know because they're addicted to pain they think they have to go through pain barriers then oh wow that was good you know so that's what people do in yoga that's what people do in work I've got to go through pain why have you got to go through pain you may have to apply yourself but you need to take a break too And as things picked up, I realised I could actually connect to my entire network of wellness friends and contacts and loved ones on the island to open up their retreats 
to give back and do similar work, but not just on my own anymore. And I couldn't see anyone else really doing that, as I also hadn't been on my own events um, previously. And in truth, why should anyone do that? So I saw firsthand over those 10 years of giving retreats just how much work goes into creating them and the events around them. But I boldly started asking the ones who wished to be on the show to give something back to me, to give away to the heartbroken, the lonely, the cancer survivors, the ones in Heartbreak Hotel, or worse, grieving for a loved one uh, that they may have lost. My number one motivation was pure in that I just never really wanted anyone to feel as bad as I did in that crash. And by sharing little parts of my story while chatting to those I respected through the initial episodes, I could feel by the immediate response that I was already helping the ones I hoped to find to realise that they were not alone. I am an extremist. I've been an extremist pretty much my whole life, I'd say. That's also something I've noticed over the course of this fast. And, and that's what I love about it. It just gives you this roller coaster journey that you know yesterday was a crash and burn big time in the afternoon I felt really sad you know I've cried on this fast a few times um and and it's just you know I don't know how many opportunities we really get in this world to like sit and feel and that is something oh it's making me feel a little bit tearful just talking about you know feeling is Feeling is hard, you know. Feeling is really, really hard. And we're not trained, I don't think. That's what I'm experiencing. What real feeling into the depths of any big emotion are actually like until, and it sounds crazy to say that food being gone from the system creates that space, but it does. It really does. And there have been moments where I've experienced euphoria and bliss and ecstasy and love and... I'm actually going to cry. This is very embarrassing. (laughs) Oh, dear. Get a grip, Joe. Anyway, but there are moments where, yeah, I have been down the gutter and uh, I have doubted everything about my life and about, yeah, my existence, my purpose on this planet. (laughs) So, you know, but I think a lot of people go through that a lot of the time. And I was experiencing a bit of that before I decided to fast. So for me, this has just been such a powerful decision to feel a bit down in the dumps, feel a bit flat, feel a bit lost, feel a bit alone, feel a bit confused. I've had so much going on in my life the last six months. Not all of it good. Some of it's been amazing, and I'm I'm so grateful for all of the lessons I've picked up along the way. But the fact of the matter is, I just wanted to go deeper and get to the root of what it is that is doing my head in making me feel rubbish because when I look out to the sea right now on Cala Martina where I'm standing or walking as I'm talking yeah my life is just it's just beyond amazing and I'm the curator of that and we all know that but it just yeah there's nothing to fear there's nothing in there inside of me um that I'm scared of anymore and I had this experience with breath work a long time ago I was terrified of doing it because I was like oh my god you know what if I meet myself and I'm a terrifying hideous monster but actually you know the answers are inside of us the bliss is there it's all accessible it's just sometimes really knowing or wanting have a deep burning desire to get reacquainted you know to really refined that person um, who got a little bit lost along the way.
And my second intention was that I hoped to blow open the very exclusive and elite system that is the retreat business on the island. Because for most people who really need a retreat on Ibiza, it's simply not affordable. Um, And my third intention was that 99.9% of all podcasters on Ibiza were making DJ sets, promotions for parties or venues. And I felt like it was high time that the rest of the world got to know of Ibiza for something other than getting smashed and rebel against the image of what Ibiza is basically infamous for. Good morning, Reverend. It's uh, Howard Marks calling. Look, you really mustn't release this truck, mate. Or even play it live. You're glorifying drugs, like you're saying they're cool. But don't forget, drugs make people irrational. Drugs make people irrational, especially those people who don't take them. Trust me, I've had my fair share of parties. Don't get me wrong, I used to be a music journalist. I'm not against any partying. But there's just so much more than that here. And it really does kill me to see people's faces sometimes when I used to travel the world and proudly tell people that Ibiza was my home. And for them to ask me why I chose to willingly move here, I felt like enough was enough. And to reset that narrative alone felt like a really powerful reason to pick myself up and do something to make a change. So in a nutshell, I use those feelings of being completely lost to attempt to help other people and spread a little bit of joy of Ibiza's alternative and healing side while also attempting to help myself along the way by launching the Reset Rebel. So first and foremost, I want to say a massive thank you for listening to this series. I'm blown away to see how many things have exploded from this project since we began um, on the 3rd of March 2018 when I was surrounded by my girlfriends in Thailand on my second running away trip in less than three months and I bravely hit the publish button on episode number one. And as it turned out, I also boldly worked up the courage to ask my first guest, my good friend Toby Clark from Walking Ibiza, if... He would lend a hand and without thinking, he stepped straight into the mix in the big old hearted way he often does. And this is what happened. You're going to um, very kindly give away uh, a place on on one of the um, events that's going on this year, because one of the points of the Reset Rebel is to open up the retreats and the reset um, tools that we have at our fingertips on this island. And it's really, really, really kind of you and generous. Of you to give away one of these spaces, Toby. Yeah, I've made a decision, and Joe, you've supported me in everything I've been doing for the last six years, seven, six years, something like that. And you did the podcasts, and you've always been um, a great fan of the walks and supporting me along the way. I love what you do, and I'd like to support what you do as well. See, I'm actually going to give away one of the places on the October around the island trip. So, are you serious? Yeah. You said that you'd let me know which one it's going to be at the end. <laughs> that's so exciting. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, it's something that's it has crossed my mind actually a few years ago. It hasn't come up in the last few years that I'd like to give give a place to someone who can't afford it or is in a bad way in their lives at the moment or in a bad place or whatever whatever it is on, on their journey in their life that they're not in a very good place. Because I really believe that walking can really heal people so whoever gets the place for whatever reason they get it for i believe that it can be life-changing for them and if i can just help one person to reset their lives and press the reset button then i'd, l- I'd love to do that and i'm very happy to give a place away to someone who needs it 
Well, that moment set the tone for the next 98 episodes. And for that, I will be forever grateful to Mr. Toby Clark. And just to add the cherry on the cake, to celebrate this being our 100th episode and being our very first guest, Toby has agreed to give away yet another spot on his Around the Island walk this October to apply for that place if you feel like you also need a reset in some way please do drop us a line with your reasons to just the good news please at gmail.com i've done the walk myself all 268 kilometers of it and it's something i will never ever forget 12 days of camping hiking eating al fresco seeing every inch of the beautiful coastline is combed and you know you get to make the berry very best of friends with your fellow walkers while disconnecting from whatever you need to take a little reset from so that email again is just the good news please at gmail.com you can also dm me on instagram at the reset rebel Next, we move on to the episode where I travelled in a taxi on my way um, to the airport to grab a few hours with the actress Sadie Frost at a villa in the middle of nowhere. Now, my car was completely kaput when I went to start it, so the taxi dropped me at the gate and it turned out the house was another car journey the other side. As I walked in, I saw Jude Law's doppelganger son, Raph, at the breakfast table, topless, and I prayed that my my face was not betraying me uh, when they invited me to join them for chocolate brownies and some coffee. And within minutes of that interview starting, Sadie showed me the full power and extent of not just her rebelliousness, as we've all watched through her years as Kate Moss's bestie, but her distinct ability to reset I kind of feel like she's probably one of the most qualified reset rebels um, on the island currently, having reset her path in life so many, many times. And I'm so glad to be joined by Sadie Frost. Hello. Hi, it's nice to be here, sitting with you in this beautiful place, very serene. I mean, I've been doing yoga for a long time and, you know, I've been on such a journey in the sense that my mum was had me when she was 16 and she was a hippie and my dad was a psychedelic artist and we came to Ibiza when I was about three and we lived on a bus my parents drove on, on a uh, they converted an old school bus and I lived that lived on the bus you know through Europe here on the island and we went to Formentera and there's a famous photograph somewhere that my mum actually found where there was just a tiny little ferry going between Ibiza to Formentera with the school bus like driven onto it and it hanging half on hang half off and I've got like memories of being on the island you know then a long, long time ago, you know. So I grew up in a bohemian environment. You know, environment. Um, my stepfather was an activist, and we were always vegetarians. And my, we were in a religious cult called the Bhagwan Rajneeshas, um, and it was kind of very, very crazy. Um, and my mum introduced me to yoga at sixteen, but then I kind of went on my journey, which was you know, ego, career, you know, children, men, and um, you know, my head was filled with so much that I kind of. You know, and I think you you have to kind of it is like opening Pandora's box, and you have to kind of you have to kind of suffer, and you have to kind of wound yourself in a way to kind of make any kind of progression. And you know, there were, I, I suffered really badly with postnatal depression, and I always had a fear of depression because my father was very depressed and was sectioned, and my ultimate fear in my life was for me to be sectioned or have any psychiatric problems because it so uh, runs deep in my family. 
and that's you know genetic um, and obviously experience and trauma can help with that um, and trigger it so so I kind of you know when even though my mum introduced me to yoga and all these lovely positive things I kind of went off and and just had to learn you have to learn yourself that this doesn't work or that doesn't work or those people are toxic and this is toxic and um, so so I probably committed to doing yoga and meditation and stuff about after the postnatal depression and stuff about 15 years ago and then it's fitting it in around you know bringing up children and as life's gone on I've just realized that like the really simple things make me happy and you know I don't need I don't really look I'm in a beautiful place I'm very grateful for being here but I just don't want much you know like that I love being in India because I love the simplicity of life there having a you know small room with a few belongings and just keeping it like that and I guess your social circle gets smaller because I I, I really know who my friends are and, and the people I trust and the people I love you know I kind of kept going back to certain things thinking maybe that will change that situation will change that person will change but often the person you know that maybe kind of um, hurt you or did something in, in the beginning will keep doing that so you know you, it's, it's, you know, you can sometimes be a slow learner but I, I feel in a, a really good place and I think the thing is that I just accept me for me and I know that I don't what I do and I don't like now and I've got you know these four beautiful kids that are all you know I feel like I can really help them and guide them because I've experienced so much whereas if I was completely oblivious and naive to everything and and especially their friends as well like anyone who is struggling or mental health or addiction things you know I've kind of I've, I've experienced a lot of it um and and still experiencing it you know and still trying to find my way so what you know obviously the nature of this podcast is called the reset rebel a lot of people with anxiety and depression listen to it and mm. it's kind of like connecting to people that have been through it and mm. you say your worst fear was being sectioned mm. and that did actually happen like for 28 days how did you feel after that um it was just scary i mean you know to i had this fear from 15 of being locked up and and that and that whole thing of just i don't know like some had some kind of I don't know, so, yeah, some nightmare and this, this, and I guess you can, what your fear, you can create that to happen. But when, when I had postnatal depression, um, it, on the, on, with my last baby, it was so bad that I couldn't like, you know, really know how to get dressed or pack a case or how, how to look after four children. Um, my mind and my body was so, um, you know, it, 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 I just kind of fell apart and my best friend, and I was trying to do too much. And I think the thing was, in those de- t- at that point, it was such a stigma to postnatal depression. People didn't mention it. People didn't talk about it. People would just say to me, um, you know, pull, pull yourself together. What's wrong with you? You've got beautiful children. You've got a lovely house. You've got a lovely husband. But the thing was, like, inside, I was just so scared and fearful. Like, I couldn't walk into a room without feeling anxious or panic attacks. And I, would, like, I couldn't eat or sleep. And I'd say to my best friend, call an ambulance, call an ambulance. She'd have to call an ambulance. And... With the post-natal depression, when I got sectioned, it was because I—I I just, um, I mean, off the scary thing about it is, it, 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 there is a stigma, and when people see people at the most vulnerable, other people can take advantage and to get their benefit themselves. So, you know, it's like in the Victorian times when men used to get women locked up because they—they they were a woman was expressing themselves, or they, you know, they, they just did it all the time. But women in insane asylums, and 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 I, you know, being sectioned is. is is a crazy thing because people can see that you're vulnerable and you're in pain and they can do that for their own benefit and and I don't want to get into that situation but it was for someone else's benefit to um, get what they wanted um, so you know as soon as I kind of you know 
I, I, I was there, I was like, oh my God, I've, I finally faced my fear. Um, this is awful. And people were just, you know, a bit drugged up to, you know, people just walking around circles past the kind of nurse's station. And I was like, I just need to get out of here because you can just see how people just get stuck there. I mean, even talking about it now, I'm getting like, you know, the, the trauma and the pain of that. Um, and then, you know, the panic attack and anxiety and was so bad. And, um, you know, um, so I saw do, so many different specialists. And, 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 yeah, and in the end, it was, I got sober for four years. I did the, the 12-step program. Um, just be, not because I was like a heavy, heavy drinker, but when my anxiety was bad, like alcohol would be like in a social situation would really calm me down. Um, but then the next day it would be worse. Mm-hmm. So, so, and I realized, you know, I was never really good on alcohol. I, 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 you know, I could get, everyone else could drink all day and all night and, and I would have two drinks and, and I would feel a lot worse already. It would just affect me differently. So. So I think by being sober and really kind of going through um, the kind of the, the you know different you know doing the twelve steps and and talking about my problems and people accepting me and and pe- and realizing that you know there was lots of people the same as me and that I you know that I always felt like I wasn't good enough and all that kind of stuff. So the more work I did um, on that, and now I'm um, I, I go to um, um, Alanon and Alanon has been really helpful for me because. If you're a ch- uh, adult child of, a, of an alcoholic or an addict, there's there's a whole load of stuff that comes with that. You know, not feeling good enough, trying to control things, drama, um, and and then you start learning about your own behaviour and not trying to change other people and control other people and just say, you know, a bit like me coming to the, this place, thinking, you know, some people want to ski down a mountain. I don't want to do that. I don't want to go hiking today in the heat, but I want to go and sit on a mat and do yoga or sit and eat some rice with somebody. We'll go and pick some flowers, you know. But that doesn't mean I'm weird or wacky, but we're just all different. And I think I try to fit into a, a certain thing and a social thing that I actually was never really, wasn't really right for me. And I like being creative and maternal and, and, and I have to feel safe. So for me, I think, you know, there are lots of tools, you know, to keep me on the right track. And that is, you know, meditating most days I do you know the serenity prayer would be something that really helps me if I'm not sleeping or it connects my head my my head to my body it's that feeling of like you know when when I talk about higher power it's when I'm not feeling connected and grounded in it and when I feel like my higher power isn't with me when I feel like I'm slightly insane and I know I'm not insane I'm just sensitive and I'm just anxious and I get upset if some people like you know, if, the, if I see a wounded bird, somebody might just walk past and not. But for me, that is like, you know, the pain I feel on those kind of things. You know, I've never ate meat or fish. I just, from a child, it was something that I just didn't want anyone to suffer. Now, as someone, as I mentioned earlier, who discovered Ibiza as a music journalist back in the day, I went to cover the very first Ibiza Rocks parties for Virgin Radio. And not for one minute did I think they would be the enormous success that they are today. So much so, there is a whole hotel dedicated to the alternative musicians to purely DJs that they attract. So another highly overqualified Reset Rebel is the one and only Pike's owner, Dawn Hindle, a woman who not only took over the baton of such a magical playground in the name of Pike's Hotel on Ibiza, but someone who had the foresight and vision, along with her then partner, Andy, to realise that the island has potential to attract not just the electronic music lovers. And for me, that was a pivotal moment 
and how I actually came to fall in love with Ibiza. So meeting Dawn was a huge honour on episode number 62. I'm super delighted to welcome today's guest to the show and that is of course Dawn Hindle. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's so lovely to have you and to kind of talk about your sort of reset rebel uh, tactics, I suppose, across the years in Ibiza. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually worked it out um, a couple of weeks ago. I've been saying I've been here for 20 years, for the last five years, and I've worked it out, it's actually 25 years. <laughs> yeah, so. So when did you actually arrive? We arrived in 94. So we arrived in 94 to do... Um, do a club night called Manumission so we did that for um, 15 years until we just tried to grow up which is sort of impossible in Ibiza then realised we'd get a proper job um, which we're still trying to do and we um, we started Ibiza Rocks so we just basically brought live music at the time to the island and guitar music and stopped doing nightclubs um, and we did that we're still doing that still doing that and then we got pikes 10 years ago yeah you are pretty much one of the reasons I moved here indirectly actually you actually just reminded me because um, when I was working at Virgin Radio there was a, um, a Thursday night show and I was making a documentary for that show for a guy called Steve Harris you know I think he works at X- XFM and he asked me to come over here and cover the first I beat the rocks gig, and that is exactly what I did. So I got to spend, um, yeah, quite a few days hanging out with um, Maximo Park and the Kaiser Chiefs, and I had obviously the time of my life. And I'd already been coming here for sort of like 20 years at that point, clubbing and partying in a, in a slightly different way. But when I started working at Virgin Radio, I really fell in love with rock music, and I hadn't really had the opportunity to develop that side of my sort of music taste and coming here and realising that the place I'd always come to kind of do electronic you know music parties was like a really amazing amazing thing and I thought I don't know if that's gonna really take off but of course now you're what how many years are you into Ibiza Rocks it's massive yeah it's probably about 15 as well it's um I, I mean we didn't know whether it was gonna work we just thought it was really needed in fact the whole island told us it wouldn't work which is why we called it Beat the Rocks, because the island did not rock and hated rock music. So, you know, that was with that period of Matsumo Park, Kaiser Chiefs, was just, I think, was a, almost like a golden era of Ibiza Rocks as a brand. It was when we were really establishing ourselves. There was a lot of great music. There was a lot of great, um, especially UK bands coming out at that period. I think it was just a really rich um, time that type of music and and so I think it was just we sort of like bungled it up and brought them all out on holiday to Ibiza and you know I still remember going on the on that stupid frog um, theme park attraction in San Antonio with Ricky from the Kaiser Chiefs <laughs> and sort of stumbling off you know these people were like just having the time of their lives I think they were just having a great time mm. and I think it gave a lot of people a real love of Ibiza that probably either never experienced it or never thought it was relevant for them it's like most things when you start it you get it completely wrong I mean so wrong that it actually is very right but we uh, <laughs> which which is very accidental but um you know we put the bands on in privilege initially um in the back room um in a little venue and sometimes actually even on the main stage and we had people oh my goodness we had all sorts of people 
and we had the electric six you know singing i want to take you to a gay bar in the middle of in the middle of the club and people thinking we were absolutely mental we had Hamar superstar as a resident who was you know an hilarious comedy almost a caricature um and we had i mean we just had an amazing acts fisher spooner we had all sorts of people and it worked i mean it worked amazingly but the bands hated it because they were playing at three in the morning and they'd arrive and they'd sort of say, right, you know, expecting to go on at eight, nine o'clock, which is a traditional sort of gigging concert time. And we tell them they had to wait till 3 a.m. I mean, we had like LCD sound system playing and they'd got so drunk by the time it got on stage that I think James Murphy collapsed into his keyboard and, and could only play half the set, you know, so... So it was quite a sort of weird thing to have done to a lot of people. We probably broke a lot of bands at that period. As much as Ibiza is known for the party, very little is spoken about its history and its heritage and the events from time gone by. So it was on a walking Ibiza walk with Simon Reed, another guide from the group I heard a snippet of a story I'd never heard before about a plane crash back in 1972 when Iberia flight number 602 crashed into a mountain near San Jose. All 104 people on board the flight died after leaving Valencia. And so having never made the trip to the site, Simon and I met up there so he could take me through what is still a mountainside covered in wreckage after the aircraft essentially exploded on impact. This is where the story really starts. The plane was coming in from Valencia and he was cleared to land um, coming in from the west of course, every airport, even though it's only got one runway, has got actually got two runways. You have the runway from one side and the runway from the other, and they're and they're they're, they're numbered differently. So he was going to come in and land on uh, from a, from a westerly approach. So that's flying um, over the uh, the beach of uh, Escodalar. So that would be, if you like, just passing Esvedra. So the people on the plane would have seen Vedra out there and they would have seen the, the, the beautiful mountains of Ibiza as they were coming in. But there was at one point it was said that he decided to change the approach and he wanted to come in from Ibiza town instead. We've all, those of us living here, we've all seen the planes flying over Ibiza town on that approach. And that's the one that he requested. There was only a couple of knots difference in wind. It had changed slightly. The original flight plan was to come in from the west. But then he changed it and requested coming in from the other side on a, on a whim, perhaps. We don't know. There was not really enough to change in wind to say that you can't land from this direction. Now, normally what you would do is you would scoot out to the south of the island, which is what they do now, and... Uh, make a left-hand turn and come in from that side but he decided not to he decided to overfly the island and he was descending of course he, he, he it is said that well the, the recordings say that uh, state that he he requested a descent from i think it was five thousand meters so he started to descend and requested to come in from the other side but he came over the island, descending as he went, instead of taking the safe route out to sea, where there's no mountains. Um, so 
The story then goes, and the recordings say that he started talking to the air traffic controllers about football. Now, a lot of a lot of the uh, the accounts mention this talking about football. So there's a lot going on in the cockpit when you're coming in to land. You're configuring the plane for landing. Flaps have got to be out. You've got to be throttling back. You've got to be putting the let's say flaps undercarriage in in preparation. You've got to be make, maybe making announcements. The the the, the the cabin crew are doing their thing as well so you're preparing the plane for a landing but he was talking about football and then the last few um the last few words uh that were uttered were ponme una cerveza ya estamos which is get a beer on we're we're we're, we're there already we're, we're we're about to land and of course that was the last thing that was heard and then after that the big boom and uh, the story over the next few hours came out that uh, the plane had struck, had struck the island. Ibiza would not be Ibiza without music, but one man has made it his job to reset the musical narrative on Ibiza with his work, World Unplugged. Events bringing musicians from around the world to play acoustic live gigs in everything from caves to farms and private homes. Justin Manville is a singer-songwriter and lives with his beautiful wife Chloe and their two girls near San Lorenzo. But hearing how it all began as I went to meet him for the very first time unveiled a beautiful story about his family heritage and his intentions for living on the island. This is called Let Love Rain. Try to survive these feelings and what you remember, but your mind is already clouded. You try not to listen, just focus on where you belong, but the pressure is much too strong. No more control. Why will be, will be There's a new design on your mind It's pulling it apart It's got you guessing, got you guessing You don't know where to start You don't know this part Man's from your side 
hide your reacting to you has all it took was love no more control well we'll be begin the Reset Rebel uh, podcast here up in the mountains of San Miguel and I'm joined uh, with the exquisite sounds of Mr. John, Justin Masman. <laughs> oh, it's a good beginning. Mr. <laughs> I like it. Mr. Justin Manville. I think I've had too much coffee. Doesn't matter. I mean, you know, the more you kind of put emphasis on that, the more people are going to remember that that's not my name. <laughs> Somehow. My brother was, uh, you know, into music. He was in the band that, that toured the world for, for a number of years and, um, yeah, my father, mother and father started singing later on in their lives and they would go singing together. That's what they did as a, as a sociable thing. They would uh, go with a keyboard player, Mickey Finn, and they would uh, sing in, in kind of wherever. And, and my father, even before he died, he, he was going to old people's homes and singing. And he, and he said, I've got this thing which links to your therapy thing and the sound healing. He said, I've got a thing and it's called sound healing. Uh, and it's a reminiscent therapy. And he didn't know about any of this stuff, you know, this newfangled ideas. And he said, I go into the old people's home. And he said, I'm older than them. And even some of those. And he goes, some of them are catatonic. You know, they're not even responding. There's just zero. And he said, as soon as I start singing the Frank Sinatra song or something from their era and their, their, when they were in their prime, he said, suddenly they wake up out of this coma. And he said, and they start tapping their finger or they start moving. And he said, it's just instant. And he said, so it's reminiscent therapy. And, I'm, and that's me. And I'm making a disc. And he would just go around, uh, you know, Wales at the time, he'd, 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 uh, he'd gone off and, and married a young woman at 30, 34 years old when he was 70 odd in, in the, uh, yeah, he just went touring. Good man. Yeah, he was, he, he was prodigious, you know, and, and, um, and yeah, so it, it's, it's just always been music, it's always been performance, and uh, even from a young age I was setting up these kind of little intimate concerts uh, wherever we were I mean we had this old pub um, and I used to take the corner of that the odd time and invite some friends around so we were just doing it since since 15 years old even younger we just wanted to play music and we wanted to create this kind of focused atmosphere you can't live on Ibiza without drugs entering your world in some capacity, whether it be plant medicines or party drugs of choice. But after hearing an interview with a man on Gwyneth Paltrow's podcast, Goop, 
I immediately called the New York leading psychologist, Will Sue, to see if he would chat to little old me on episode number 30, just six months into making this series, about the clinical trials he was conducting stateside to treat social anxiety and PTSD. Will works with MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which researches the medicinal utility of psychedelic substances. Trials with MDMA have been ongoing for quite some time now, but three years down the line and some big things have changed. But when we spoke in 2018, I was pretty fascinated by what Will had to say about his experiences. It's really blown away anything that psychiatry has ever seen. Um, you know, scientists or doctors or, you know, people, skeptics will be like, well, you've only done X number of patients. But the reality is it, it, it's been an incredible uh response to these medicines, again, especially with MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder. So really, if the FDA really, we can show them that, yes, these are efficacious medications, then they're really at the point where they should, well, they will recommend to reschedule, right? Because then the two definitions don't fit of no medical benefit and highly addictive. And so once it's shown to be medically beneficial, the DEA really should have the responsibility to reschedule and then it becomes a much easier prescribable medicine. I mean, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to Ibiza, um, but there's a, there's quite a high usage of, of MDMA going on on this island. There's a yeah, a lot of nightlife, a lot of, um, you know, big clubs and a lot of DJs and, you know, taking MDMA here for recreational purposes is um, is a big thing. So, you know, that's this this podcast is, is kind of called The Reset Rebel and it's based on people that have reset their paths to kind of work in wellness in Ibiza and sort of moved away from that whole sphere. So I'm, I'm kind of interested. I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of people that will be listening to this uh, have have tried MDMA and it's there's no doubt about obviously the kind of catharsis that's kind of created from that whole process of kind of releasing and being able to tap into you know deeper emotions and obviously the inhibitions to access those emotional planes are sort of taken away and is that is that where you kind of feel that the kind of the healing or the trauma release work comes from or how does it work? Yes, and I actually just realized I didn't finish answering your question. So what, what the general uh, way that MDMA is used in clinical trials is the treatment part of it is about 12 weeks, which means we're meeting weekly with the therapist, or sorry, with the therapist are meeting with, with the patient weekly for therapy. Yeah. And once yeah. every four weeks, we give them MDMA. Um, and we give them two doses generally. So they, they take 125 milligrams soon after the morning, uh, after they arrive in the morning. And then about an hour and a half, we give them a booster of 75 milligrams, which you're, you and the probably listeners are probably aware that that's essentially pretty, it's a solid dose that's equivalent to, um, uh, you know, what people will take uh, recreationally. And, you know, those sessions last seven or eight hours. Um, and, you know, the trained therapist, there's always a male and a female therapist. So it's two therapists, one patient, um, you know, end up having a very uh, intense and beautiful uh therapy session. I have long been an admirer of John Satrincher, the man behind the wheels of steels for 10 and 12 hour stints at Satrincher since I started to go there more than 20 years ago. So amongst the thicket of the cicadas on Calanova in deep July, we caught up over some lunch for me to hear some of his stories and for me to find out about the man behind his eclectic sound. Joe, very good afternoon. Very nice to be here, away from Citrencia, because I don't often get off to see other beaches. <laughs> I'm sure you don't. I mean, I'm sure you see quite enough of that beach, really, to be honest, in lots of ways. Yes, I've had enough of it. 
<laughs> 25 years you've been playing there. That's um, that's a lot of time. I mean, your, your sets are not really the average kind of length for a DJ anyway. So it's, it's almost like a full day in the office that you put in there when you do play down at Citrincher. Yeah, I was always go- against getting an office job, um, or at least the timing of it. But I seem to have slipped back into that. But um, at least I'm playing music and I'm on the beach. And yeah, this is my 25th year, which has gone very quickly. And I still feel very young. You look it, I must say. You're very dashing in that wonderful, that sort of tropical Hawaiian ensemble you've got on today. Your shirt is, oh, this um, is, is epic. Oh, shirt. This is what they wear in um, Thailand when they have the water festival. And they're really cheap shirts. It's actually my only clean shirt. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you play for shirt. sort of, yeah, 12 hours a day, I'm sure you haven't got yeah. much time to do your own washing. No, no. But you buy these shirts in Thailand and they're really cheap. And um, you buy, the, the, the water festival lasts for uh, six, uh, three days, and you buy six shirts for like a tenner. And because uh, you get completely soaked, that's I'm wearing my song crunch shirt. Is this when you sort of revert back to sort of, you know, being a two year old and run around with your little uh, water pistol and basically everyone's just there having a one big old, uh, yeah, kind of little play? Uh, yeah, everybody is, you just get drenched and everybody is just wearing, um, everybody is just shooting water at everybody. It's, it's the craziest festival you've ever, you could possibly, and probably the best New Year festival I've ever had because it goes for three days. It's totally peaceful and everybody's just, you know, they buy these giant water pistols and there's just water everywhere and everybody gets soaked. So yeah, that's my sort of New Year and then I come to Ibiza to start the new summer. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice little path that you tread between the two spots, but I think that maybe we should just instigate a song cran in Ibiza. Surely that would be a good thing to do. I mean, and they're sort of doing that anyway in San Antonio and parts of Playa del Bossa. It's uh, yeah. you know, the water parties that they have, but wouldn't it be cool? Like, maybe we could have a little day at Citrincha. It would be good. I don't know if... Um, because I don't know if it's, it works in Thailand because everybody's very peaceful. I think you would probably disturb some people here and maybe a fight would break. <laughs> I don't know if it would work in Europe. <laughs> But the extraordinary thing in Asia is that this, this happens and all the Thai people join in and you almost get the Thai people ganging up against the tourists. It's their revenge. <laughs> and they pelt each other with water with these massive guns everywhere, all over the Bangkok in the city or wherever you are in Thailand. And nobody gets offended. And there's very little security. There's very, very few police around, which is extraordinary because you think a festival like that, like Notting Hill in London, is full of security and that's just a small area. We're talking about a whole country pelting each other with water three days in a row, non-stop. <laughs> and um, there's no security. And nobody seems to be injured or anything. So I don't know if it would work at Ibiza or in Europe. <laughs> I reckon like World War Three would break out, not just with a water piss. I can imagine some really irate yeah, 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 tourists yeah, like yeah, really yeah. walking down the road in their sort of Versace and uh, their Gucci sunglasses and their sort yeah. of, you know, Louboutin heels. And uh, the next thing you know, there would be World War. It would be big, big trouble. I can't yet. It would be fashion wars, wouldn't it? I suppose, yeah. I mean, people dress up over here. Whereas people tend to, well, the clothing's cheaper anyway. And as I said, you've got these cheap shirts, which may look quite nice. They don't look bad. <laughs> I was really admiring it when I first ran into it. So clearly, it's a two quid bargain. Uh, you wouldn't find that in Ibiza either to be able to sort of uh, furnish no. yourself with a, a sort of water pistol fighting wardrobe that's suitable for the occasion. Um, and, and I just love the fact that you know, obviously, over there, there's this sort of mentality of. of Playfulness, and of course, yes. people come to Ibiza to play. I mean, that Ibiza is one giant playground in, in lots of ways, but I, I, it's a very 
different kind of um, mentality in terms of the kind of sense of childishness perhaps and and real uh, acceptance I think perhaps over there where you know obviously everyone's into it they're onto it it's a bit like that holly festival they all chuck loads of uh, different colored paints at each other as well exactly yeah it's it's the same thing it's the same um, same idea and yeah I guess uh, Ibiza is a playground so uh, yeah I've never grown up One of my most random meetings for the podcast was in India, where I took the podcast while I was on my travels one winter. I boarded a taxi to go and meet a film director in the middle of nowhere to hear about his documentary on the very first clinical trials of magic mushrooms in London with patients with depression. Oh, God, these roads. Pardon me? Pardon me. Left. Thank you. Um, yeah. I missed the, uh, the screening and um, I was a bit sad to have missed it but the timings were all wrong I got there and it was running late so um, I haven't watched the film but it's going to be screened all over Europe um, and this is the first trial that they've done um, that they started four years ago way before MAPS uh, one of those American institutions started experimenting um, and this documentary basically follows the journey people and their families uh, who are suffering from chronic depression and their trust that they put into the doctors and the psychologists that were running this um, this trial and how this changed their lives. Um, so I'm really, really very much looking forward to meeting Monty. It's very windy, this uh, tuk-tuk now, we're almost on the side of a highway, um, and sort of understanding how effects reboot the brain um, and I guess you know the body as well um, and to see exactly how they went about sort of trialing um, um, it's not left no hang on one sec one moment yes left the blind leading the blind here. I don't have any Wi-Fi or Google Maps working, so we're going off into the wilderness now across a yeah, beautiful paddy field and a very, very bumpy road. Um, just really feeling a bit nervous after we been driven off into the jungle by this mountain, but I'm hoping this time we are going to strike it lucky, as Michael Barrymore would say, and find this man's house, which I'm told is blue. Um, and that's about all I have to go on right now. It's amazing what happens when you don't have any Wi-Fi or any Google Maps to lead you um, through life and uh, let you know where you are on this uh, beautiful planet. I've done many journeys like this in India in the past. Ah, this looks like it could be it, actually. Um, yes, I think so. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I first time heard this house name. Okay. Do you know if um, a man called Monty lives here? Sorry? Does the man called Monty live here? Monkey? Mo- Monty. Monty the monkey. Looks like the right house. Thank you so much for taking us. We do appreciate it. Open sesame. Keeps out traffic, monkeys, cows. We're just walking up the stairs. There he is. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? Okay, thank just you. Just thought I'd record a little bit of uh, 
How's it going? Good. So I kind of, I, I kind of enjoyed being in their company. I think that if I was living with them for weeks on end, that would be different because John would often spend, you know, most of the day and then weeks on end and months on end kind of in his room, you know, stuck there. And he told me this, he told me, I was asking him why he sort of, if he can, if he can scroll around on the internet, which is what he does, um, why can't he, you know, cook in the kitchen or um, do something with the family sort of thing? And he said that basically what he does is that he, he tries to um, find a subject that is really, really complicated and then he goes really deep into that subject, whether it's philosophy, academic, whatever, uh, so that he can fill his brain with thinking on this thing. Because the moment there's a little bit of space in his brain, that's when the feeling of worthlessness comes in, the guilt attached with not being the father that he would like to be comes in, the fact that he's you know, ruining his family, he would much, he'd be much better if he was dead. You know, all of these thoughts come in when there's a little bit of space. And so he has to keep his mind completely, 100% occupied. And that, for me, just gave me an enormous insight into what this depression feels like, or certainly for him, anyhow. And that is an awful thing to hear. And then, obviously, to, to be living that, I just can't imagine what it's like to be living that. Um, so, so for me, the whole thing was just massively eye-opening. I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't quite in the bracket of, oh, just snap out of it. You know, you've got a nice family and, you know, you're, you're, you're not sort of living on the streets of Mumbai. Um, but I probably wasn't a million miles away from that. And then having made this film... my eyes and attitudes and everything have been so opened up to the horrors of depression um, that that it's made me a much better person, much more compassionate, much more understanding. I think that is something that a lot of, you know, a lot of us lack is that empathy. And it's, um, well, until you've experienced something, until you've been to rock bottom and down the rabbit hole for months on end, and, you know, it's not really something that many people wish to discuss either because it's, um, I think particularly in England, it's like almost like a great source of shame or that you've failed in life, that you're Mm. depressed and you don't know how to get out of it. Mm. And, you know, I think that that's incredibly sad. And films like this are incredibly important to show exactly, you know, the depths that one can sink to. And that's nothing to do with failure or... But, you know, I think a lot of people busy themselves to stay away from exactly that. This idea of coming to Goa and, you know, kind Mm. of having a a year off. I mean, a lot of people just can't cope with that. They need to be doing something. Mm. They need to have a purpose. They need to Mm. have a, you know, it be achieving something daily to feel important and they have a self-worth on this planet, which isn't rare. I think that's what a lot of people, uh, well, we're conditioned to believe that's kind of how it is. So it's interesting to explore that through film and I'm really looking forward to seeing the whole film. But you have quite a strong opinion, obviously, on uh, antidepressants, which Mm. clearly you've said um, from what you've witnessed that they don't work, obviously, I guess, from these people's particular experience. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, they they, they do work for some people. um, But I think it's sort of two-thirds or a half of people don't respond to antidepressants. And the thing that I found interesting about antidepressants when I was looking into them was that they don't don't really sort of cure you on, on the whole. I think that some people can take them and just take themselves out of a sort of blue period in their lives and so they take antidepressants and then they stop taking them and then they're done but I think that once you get on to taking antidepressants every day to to, to live to cope 
um, then that is not a happy place to be because they don't, they don't, they, they make you, from what I understand from John and Andy and Mark, is that they, they make you cope with life a little bit, but um, they don't make you better. And what they're saying is that for people like them, they start on a single dose or a low dose or whatever dose they start on, and then they carry on going up to the highest dose of that particular antidepressant, and then, and then that stops working. And then they have to come off that, which is horrific, from what I understand. The, the, the side effects of coming off these drugs is horrific. They get put on another drug, which was pretty much the same thing with a slightly different sort of compounds, and then they start at whatever level they start with that, and then they work their way out to that top of that one, and then they do the same again. And they're in this cycle of taking the drugs that aren't actually doing anything for them, apart from maybe chopping the top and bottom off and just giving them, allowing them to get out of bed maybe, or whatever it is that it allows them to do. And, and that doesn't really feel like a sort of sensible way to treat this illness. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me that you're not treating it, you're just hold, putting people in a holding pattern, basically. Um, and so that, doesn't, that never made sense to me, whereas psilocybin seems to, and again, more research is required, but it seems to take you to the heart of your depression or the seat of your depression, reveal it to you in a slightly different way, mm-hmm. and then with counselling and reintegration therapy that comes after that, and there should have been more than, of that in the trial, which they've realised in the new trial that started a couple of weeks ago... Um, has got lots, lots more reintegration therapy to try, and, to try and build on what they learnt in their sessions. And last, but by no means least, we end with an episode that I was amazed to actually capture in the fields of Noisily, a psychedelic festival I'd been invited to teach yoga at. And as luck would have it, I spotted Mr. Bruce Parry on the lineup. Now, Bruce is one of my idols, an investigative journalist and someone who threw himself into the world and communities of indigenous tribes around the world and who's made several films about it. I've danced side by side with him in Ibiza barefoot when he used to live here, but never had the balls to actually have a conversation. So this felt like the perfect moment. I've been very sort of isolated and individual for a long time and there's a loneliness that comes from that too and actually to be with a group where you're all on the same journey with the same mission, with the same value system and with the same understanding of connection to nature and beliefs and all the rest of it then, I don't know, my experience of living with tribes is that something emanates out of that that's actually really joyful and really beautiful and healthy and that's what I'm trying to emulate but it's not proving easy but uh, that's that's the mission anyway it's it's an inspiring mission there's no doubt about it I think you know in theory this uh, sounds like a a, a you know an amazing idea but I think like ego is is at the root of all of this ultimately you know there's always an undercurrent of ego for most of us but you know to live in the kind of society that you're talking about like what you talked about the rituals of the the Penan in your talk and it was like you know the women had all this power and there was this big giant thick thing that came out and pranced around a bit which was very fascinating of these like you know old rituals and things that were kind of emulating things in the past that kind of fired up that kind of real well macho kind of idea and people wanting to take over power but would you have a ritualistic concept to try and introduce your own community the thing I talk about in the talk is that narrative is really powerful 
and what we have in our society because we've been swimming in this paradigm of, of hierarchy and power for so long is that we, we kind of accept that that's the status quo, that that's it's ever been thus. And what I've noticed, having had the privilege of meeting various tribes around the world, is like 90% of the indigenous people I've lived with all still abide in a world of hierarchy and chiefs and shaman and power. But there are a few, especially those prior to the agricultural revolution, who are living in a different world. And it's them that I'm interested in. And yes, they do have rituals that reignite and that they um, hold alive this narrative, this story of stopping power from getting out of hands and out of hand and that's and that's what I'm interested in it's the narrative because I think narratives are really really important we don't necessarily have to have a ritual but we have to buy into and believe in the narrative and your know, narratives are, as I said in the talk you know they're, they're the, the strongest sort of um, forces in society in a way like money is a narrative nationalism is a narrative religions a narrative and they provide us ways of coming together and cooperating because we all agree and buy into the same story we also have at the moment a narrative in society that you know a rising tide raises all ships or that that you know that um that the old the more growth will bring us greater joy and happiness or technology will save the day and all of these things these are narratives and my understanding is that those narratives are taking us in the wrong direction and actually we're much better off simplifying and reducing a little bit and having a different narrative of more local and more uh, equal and more sharing and it, and that when I just say it like that that sounds so um, ridiculously romantic except that I've lived with people who who have that and the, the, the experience of being with them is so phenomenal that I can't just ignore it it's like wow and then when you when you take into the equation that that might well have been our way of being on the planet for 90% of our time on here and that actually this little blip now of hierarchy and power and, and all the rest of it has only come about since agriculture since we left the tropics and abundant resources into scarcity and like getting through the winter and getting through the, the, the drought and hoarding and that's where power came in and it may well have served us for a long time but clearly we're in a situation now where we have to reevaluate where we're at, where we're at in the world. And this extraordinary disparity of wealth we have now with like a handful of people earning 50% of the world's money um, is, is, is massively part of the problem. And so I don't know if it's clutching at straws or whether it's deep wisdom or what it is, I don't know. But I think that this is my answer to that. From all the things I've seen, it's like power is is at the heart of the issue and how do we try and create a way of being where that just doesn't happen all over again and that's why i talk in the in, in the talk about revolution because like most revolutions that we can think of in history written history or uh, that, that anyone can know about that not know about that anyone that um that, that we know about has essentially replaced like with like because we're all living in the same paradigms like even the most well-meaning revolution often just ends up centralizing power again and then look at the you know politburo and the bolshevik revolution or whatever it's like well-meaning sharing revolution but ends up with centralized power again that just gets out of control once again so what these tribes have is a is an understanding of decentralization where no one 
is allowed to get out of hand and no group gets out of hand and they work on that as a, a everyone understands the story and so everyone works on it as a fully empowered individual they don't have to go through someone else they all know in in their hearts and in their bones that that's the best way to be thank you so much for listening to the best and let's face it we could go on for hours of a hundred episodes and i'm not going to bore you any further but i am going to thank you from the bottom of my soul for being part of this podcast for returning for being here for interacting for leaving me five star reviews and for writing to us for the free giveaways that make me know that you exist and that you're listening and so if you do wish to join the around the island walk do pop me a line to just the good news please at gmail.com or direct message me on instagram at the reset rebel many 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 thanks again much love and i'll see you next week Oh